1: Our best friend phoned us up and said, I'm having a rubbish day. You'd say, look, babes, remove any judgment. It's all right not to feel okay. Just have a slower day. Tomorrow will be better. Call me whenever you need me. But when it's us, we sort of go, oh, my goodness, why am I not feeling like Superwoman today?
0: My guest this week is someone who has the rare experience of both treating people who may be struggling with mental health and helping shape the policies around it. During the last year, she's been on the hospital frontline, working in Covid wards and updating and supporting families through difficult, sometimes really difficult times. And she's also found time to be the shadow minister for mental health. You might remember she went viral last year after this exchange in the Commons with the health secretary. Does the secretary of state acknowledge that many frontline workers
1: feel that the government's lack of testing has cost lives and is responsible for many families being unnecessarily torn apart in grief. State.
0: Uh, no, I don't, Mr Speaker. I think that the, I welcome the Honourable Lady to her post as part of the Shadow Health team. Uh, I think she might uh, do well to take a leaf out of the Shadow Secretary of State's book in terms of tone. Please welcome MP for Tooting, Rosanna allen khan Rosella, welcome to Mad World. Thank you. Great to be here. I wish we were actually, you know, in the same room together, but obviously restrictions and all of that. But the first question I start with, with every single guest is, how are you really? Like really, honestly, truly, how are you right now? Because we ask that question all the time and often we're just like, yeah, I'm fine. Just get on with it. But I want to know how you really are today, Rosella. How am I really? Thank you for asking that. Um, I've had better weeks, if I'm totally honest with you. It's been
1: tough working over the pandemic. I've been working in hospital quite a lot. I've been trying to hold down my MP job, which is obviously a a seven-day-a-week job. I'm really gutted about some of the things that have been happening lately in our community with regards to violence against women and the tragic death of Sarah Everard, I'm really glad the kids are back at school because homeschooling and I are not friends. That's taken a bit of the pressure off. But, you know, after this, I have a meeting about my dad's best interests. He's in hospital, has been there for a number of weeks. So, there are real life things I think that affect all of us working women and so I've had better weeks but I try and remain as positive as possible but I'm not going to pretend that it's been all roses recently because it hasn't. I'm sorry about your dad. Oh no don't worry
0: these, these are things that everybody goes through, it's part of normal life isn't it? Well it is but I think it's important we talk about it because he has, does he have dementia am I, am I correct or do you not want to talk about this? Yeah he has he has dementia. No, it's OK. I think it's important that in conversations like this,
1: people are able to listen to us talking and know how normal we are and that we go through all the same things that they go through. Yeah, my dad has dementia, been on quite a journey with all of that. And um, he's, he was admitted to hospital a month ago now with, with a chest infection. And so it's, it's been a journey there. He's had amazing care. But it's been really hard because that's on the back of not being able to see him for a year and uh, you know in the care home we've we've tried innovative things they have wheeled him out into the garden a couple of times and me and me and the kids have stood on the side of the road and and made up little dances and, and and played music to try and cheer him up but obviously we're very far apart from him there and we haven't been able to you know really hug him properly so yeah it was a bit of a blow but I know so many families who have been through the same thing and I'm just actually I'm just really grateful that my family have remained well throughout COVID. I mean, I know the guilt that so many other frontline workers had with the stress of, am I bringing the virus home to my family? All of that sort of arriving home from work and shouting, nobody touch me. I need to take my clothes off and shower before the kids could even give me a hug. Yeah, so it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting time. But look, I, I always try and be glass half full and count my blessings. But I think I've also learned, Brian, if I'm really honest, how important it is to say, you know what, I'm having a bad day. I'm passing no judgment on myself. My day
0: is a solid two out of 10. And uh, I don't like it. You know what? I love that (laughs) because the passing judgment, because we, we can be feeling bad and then we can berate ourselves for feeling bad.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We can go, oh my goodness, I need to hold it together because I've got to hold it, hold it together for the kids and I have to hold it together for my team and I have to hold it together for everybody that needs me to hold it together. Mm. But what about me is the thing that I've learned and the importance of us being able to say to ourselves, yeah, I'm not feeling great, but I'm not passing judgment on myself because what would we say to our best friend? If our best friend phoned us up and said, I'm having a rubbish day, you'd say, look babes, put a cup of tea on, remove any judgment. It's all right not to feel okay. Just have a slower day. Tomorrow will be better. Take it easy. Call me whenever you need me. But when it's us, we sort of go, oh my goodness, why am I not feeling like Superwoman today? I think it's really important that we give us the advice that we would give our friends. Like, we treat ourselves as
0: our own friends. Yeah, I mean, I say things to myself that I would never say to even my worst enemy. I mean, I don't don't think I've got enemies, but, you know. But listen, you you touched on that there. You would say to someone, have a slower day. Now, you are the shadow minister for mental health. You are the MP for tooting. You are also... (laughs) a doctor at the local hospital St George's and you have been doing throughout the pandemic shifts in A&E is that correct? Yes A&E and also in the intensive care at the Royal London as part of the family support team
1: so going in and taking messages from families to their loved ones who who are on ventilators facilitating zoom calls between family members and their loved ones so yeah
0: that that's kept me busy as well I've been I've been doing both. You're firsthand seeing the effect of this disease, not just on the families who are having to experience it, who aren't able to be there with their loved ones as they lay there on ventilators, but also presumably on doctors and nurses and the frontline workers who have had to take on the most extraordinary challenges in the last year. What has that been like? Tell me, because, you know, you're a tough cookie, you're an MP, you're a doctor, you're used to this kind of stuff, but can you just sort of explain to the person listening now the sort of depth of emotion experience, the feeling, the... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't do it justice.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I have had a long career dealing with a lot of very difficult scenarios. I've been a humanitarian doctor for over a decade. I've seen the very worst of things. I've worked in refugee camps calling out the genocide in Myanmar against the Rohingya and that was very very harrowing you know seeing um, infanticide treating in the clinics and meeting people who had fled with the clothes just on their back and having to make that unenviable decision of whether to go back to pull their baby off a burning fire or run with the one child that they had left after seeing their husband murdered in front of them their village raised to the ground so these are some of the things that you know I've worked on in my life i've been to i've been to palestine and campaigned on issues there I've been to the syrian refugee camp i worked with hiv aids and tb patients in kenya i worked in the pakistan flood crisis where 2 million people were affected and i saw people homeless their their homes completely destroyed people really really suffering so I've seen a lot of suffering I've seen a lot of death. I've seen a lot of oh just real crippling crippling pain and I thought I was pretty hard as nails. you know I had my own coping strategies for dealing with some of the things that I'd you know seen in my career over the years, which involved you know sleeping way too long and having to sort of have a lot of time by myself to sort of grieve and all of those sorts of things. None of that is possible when you're working on the front line in covid and you have your own young family and I think for me, what floored me immeasurably in this crisis was as a doctor and as a nurse, you know, compassion is natural to you. It's, it's, It's an innate thing, giving someone a hug, putting a hand on their arm. All of these things are just so natural when people are grieving. But instead, you are talking to people through through full PPE, asking them to stand two metres away from you or delivering the very worst of news over the phone to them. Or if they are able to come to the hospital to say goodbye as their loved one is dying, five family members show up and then you have to, in your full PPE, say, I'm sorry, only one of you can come in. And then, you know, taking that family member in to the bedside and watching Watching that pain and and them being on the phone to the other family members that are waiting and hearing people say their goodbyes, knowing that they couldn't have seen this coming, knowing that there was absolutely no way they could have realised that as they were waving their loved one off in an ambulance, that that would be the very last time they would see them again, that you, you just want to turn back time for them so they could give them that hug or... It is heartbreaking stuff or, you know, taking an iPad to a bedside of of a woman under 30 with her three children shouting, "Mummy, mummy, wake up, you're sleeping too long. I mean, it does really does something to you in a way that you could never have imagined. And for me, the thing that has kept me awake at night, the thing that has had me crying on the way home, despite being a woman who has, you know, seen so many things and experienced so many things over a career spanning 15 years is the thought that this could have been avoided a lot of it and seeing just rows and rows of patients that represent people from our most vulnerable most marginalized communities seeing how inequality has really been very prevalent throughout this pandemic i think this pandemic has laid bare a lot of the inequalities that have existed in our society for a really long time and i and emotionally Everyone is exhausted, which is why, you know, in my role as a shadow minister for mental health, I put together our care for carers package for frontline NHS and care staff, regardless of their job. You know, everyone's important, whether they are a porter, a cleaner, a doctor, everyone is equally important and will have suffered. You know, imagine if you're that porter taking all the bodies to the morgue day in, day out, you know, what that does to your mental health. Sadly, it wasn't well received by the government, but... This has had an immeasurable effect on our frontline workers and they are they are exhausted and they are feeling a lot of pain. I can imagine,
0: ugh, the whole thing is tragic. And then I was, you know, you mentioned the, the government. You were tone policed <laughs> by Matt Hancock, our health secretary, yeah. last year. How yeah. did that feel when you were sort of standing up in parliament and you'd sort of been in the thick of it to be sort of told off? by the Secretary of State for Health?
1: Well, the overwhelming feeling was of disappointment, really, because I wasn't asking about myself. I was bringing a message, a question from frontline NHS workers. I was describing how they feel. And I asked a legitimate question on their behalf in a way that I had every right to do because I hold a shadow cabinet position. I am a shadow minister I have as much right to be in that place as anyone else. And I felt I was asking an important question that warranted an answer. And at the time, it felt pretty surreal, if I'm honest. There was a lot of backlash with people saying, do you think he was sexist? Do you think he was racist? What I saw, if I'm really honest, is a man who probably really had to struggle with his conscience, And that my question to him was incredibly triggering. So his response was to try and put me down rather than answer the question. But look, I I don't think that the mental health of our frontline workers should ever be a political football. I just wanted to ask a question and it was a disappointment.
0: But that's not the only time. You asked the Minister for Mental Health, Nadine Doris, about this care package for carers. At the time, her response was something like, if you want to dictate mental health policy, then you should have worked harder at being elected. Yeah, I actually asked her
1: eight times in one debate to work cross-party together on the care for carers package. And her response to try harder at the next election if we wanted to have anything to do with policy, actually upset a lot of people on both sides of the benches, because we should be able to work cross party together when it comes to the mental health of our frontline workers. It it, it doesn't get any more important than that. In, In fact, we should be able to work cross party on anything to do with mental health.
0: My personal opinion is that you start funding mental health properly, and the knock on effects throughout the rest of society are huge. And it's an investment. It's a proper investment. And It was interesting as well, because I think, you know, there was the triage situation that people were worried about that would happen, as it sort of did in Italy, about who would be allowed to go on ventilators and who would be given care. But I thought this is what happens all the time in in mental health care, that you have to be really, really, really unwell to get help in a lot of cases. And it seems to me that COVID, obviously, as Boris Johnson has said, public health crisis of our generation, but it's not the only one. And obviously, the mental health crisis, I personally, as what I can see, it has been worsened by this. We've seen in the last year, the government put money behind, you know, the furlough scheme, eat out to help how and, pausing stamp duty. There's so many economic things that have been kind of prioritised. Now, I know last year they did put in a plug-in. There there was um, an amount of money agreed before
1: the pandemic. The needs have changed and that isn't reflected in their promises. And that is what is really important, that there's a true acknowledgement of the mental health impact of this pandemic we have seen cams referrals you know child and adolescent mental health service referrals double we have seen anxiety escalate we have seen depression alcoholism all of those things escalate exponentially and there are also things that we haven't yet seen there are still people who are just holding it together who once all this is this is over and they have time to reflect are probably going to really, really struggle. And the Centre for Mental Health produced a report back in September. This is before the, the shocking second wave that took so many, many, many more lives. But they produced a report saying that even up to that point, up to 10 million people were going to require support for their mental health. But it's a false economy not to invest in mental health. Because if you think about one young person who doesn't have investment into services for them, the knock-on impact, it goes to potentially a family of four, five or six fulfilling their potential and being able to work and pay their taxes, give back to the economy. It makes no sense not to invest in these services. And Obviously, I've been heavily involved in mental health, for a really, really long time, particularly because I'm an A and E doctor and I do pediatric and adult A and E, and so I see children coming in self harming with eating disorders and all of these things. And I'm really, I'm actually so proud of the campaigning work that you're doing. It honestly makes me smile so much, and you, you are an absolute credit to the cause. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on your podcast. I say that because I follow you, and I just think you're brilliant. Thank you. But you may have noticed this as well, and this is something that I have really noticed in my Political position is that we all know how serious the issue is. I honestly feel that there is a mental health pandemic as well, and all the data shows us that. But what I have found is people's willingness to engage at every level is directly proportional to the amount of personal experience they have either had themselves with mental illness or that those close to them have had. And I know that Theresa May had some very close personal experience with mental health with someone she cared about in her life so she was one of the first people more recently to talk about parity of esteem I know we didn't really sort of get very far with that because there are lots of other things that took over like Brexit but when we look at the leadership that we have now in terms of the government when I engage I don't feel there's that same light bulb going off I don't feel that there is a real understanding of what it truly means, what it feels to be absolutely crippled. Because, and many people listening to this will be able to resonate. And again, it, you know, it bridges all socioeconomic divides. If your child is self-harming, if your child has an eating disorder, it is absolutely crippling. It is the most all-consuming thing someone can go through. Parents often have to give up work because they can't access the help and support that they need. We have to discuss people's lived experiences, because I think when you start talking about mental health with regards to lived experiences, rather than you know, rather than numbers and statistics, I think it helps people relate a lot more. Like if you describe to somebody the scenario of them being at work and calling home and their son or daughter is locked in the bathroom and won't come out and what that means to their working day... And the fact that they are so troubled by that, that they have to stop their meeting, go home, try and help their child out in the bathroom, here they then may have found good of self-harm, have to take them to hospital. Describing that experience is very different to saying, well, we know that X percent of young people are suffering with self-harm at the moment. I think it's framing things through lived experiences that's really, really important. But also adverse childhood experiences are the single biggest driver for mental ill health later on down the line and it's about saying that mental health shouldn't exist in a health silo it needs Mm. to be working with education with housing with domestic violence all of the things that we know don't even give a child a chance in life you know not to suffer with their mental health and so the fact that we know this means that we absolutely are to blame as policymakers if we don't get it right at the outset, if we don't invest in mental health, if we don't increase support to CAMS, you know, child and adolescent mental health services, if we don't address the true drivers of inequality that lead to mental ill health.
0: know that lockdowns will have a negative effect on mental health because all mental health issues they work by isolating people and they uh, tell people they're alone they tell people they're freaks they tell people that no one understands what they're going through which is obviously as i i say often is is just not true not only does someone out there understand what you're going through but there's someone out there who's going through what you're going through right now but mental illnesses they don't want you to connect with people I mean, this is the thing. When lockdowns happened, there was part of me that thought, "Phew, I don't have to socially interact with people." The part of me that was saying "Phew" was my mental illness. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That was it. Wasn't really me. Yeah. It, yeah. it wasn't good for me. Yeah. And, I, and you know, yeah. You know, and I think
1: we can all relate to the idea of goodness me. What's normal life actually going to be like with a really busy work schedule? I mean, it's busy anyway. But if I think about this, you know, I I do virtual events in the evenings and I can still do bedtime with my kids whereas when we go back to normal it's going to be late voting and evening events again and then there's going to be our social calendars and all the sorts of normal things that we deal with and a part of me thinks oh how am I going to manage that and I'm the most extrovert person you'll ever meet in your life and even I'm thinking Goodness, you know, Whereas imagine if you suffer with anxiety. Imagine if you're agrophobic, imagine all of the people who have been able to, well, you, in, in effect, shield themselves from the outside world with some sort of justification to themselves mm. that they're keeping themselves safer and everybody else safer. Now imagine the pressure on them, to go out and engage again and go back into the office and do all the things that they struggled with in the first place. I mean, yes, it's great if people have a lovely big garden and they've had more time to do the gardening, great. But Mm. I think what we're seeing more so is people who have been able to manage their mental health in a different way because they haven't had to leave the house. But let's remember the number of people that have been pushed into mental illness because they've been so isolated, because they've been so lonely, because they've lacked that basic human interaction that we all
0: need as people to survive and thrive. Have you personally, I mean, it seems to me everyone has, I mean, I certainly have, but have you personally experienced those negative effects on your mental health in the last year? I mean, you know, as an A&E doctor and an MP, I imagine this has been really, really hard. Yeah, I definitely have because I, I think I've
1: internalized a lot of people's pain and suffering and I've tried to sometimes bury it because it's almost like there isn't time I actually made a joke I, I even tried to have a bit of burnout a few weeks ago but I didn't have time for burnout <laughs> you know, It was uh, there was just no time I I'm, you know, like I made the big announcement right everybody Mummy needs a few days to do not a lot because I'm feeling a bit burnt out but then, you know, life stuff happened, and there just wasn't even time for that. And I think that sort of reflects what I noticed in, you know, in the last year. I mean, I was having the time of my life this time a year ago, or just before a year ago, where I was, you know, like campaigning to be deputy leader and running all over the country, having a great old time. And all of a sudden, this pandemic hit, stopped all campaigning, threw myself into my frontline work, and actually, I felt a lot of self-imposed pressure. Because I was on the front line, and I was the only person on our political side that was so, and I was seeing the whole PPE scandal and all of that, I was always doing media, I was always campaigning, plus I was dealing with you know people that I was seeing that were so ill and trying to manage homeschooling and all of this. And I, I felt as though I didn't really acknowledge my feelings, I just suppressed everything because I needed to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then when was it? I think it was June. There was a week in June and I was like, wow, I just feel as though it's a little harder to get out of bed than normal. And I just feel like I could quite happily stay in the same clothes for a few days. And, and I don't feel great. And I realized that what it was is I I needed to, I needed to grieve. I needed to grieve a lot of the people that I'd seen die, a lot of the times I'd held it in for the families that I was seeing who looked and sounded like me, with parents that looked and sounded like mine. And because I'd tried to be strong for so many people for so long, I just had internalized so much and because it felt like a constant hamster wheel, no time to stop. So like if I do, for example, you know, if I do like an aid mission and I see horrible things, I know I can come back and I can make my diary a bit clearer and I can reflect and do what I need to do. And I can sleep a bit longer if I need to. But this was different. It was ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. And I just thought, wow, I need to think about this for a minute. And I realized I needed to allow myself to grieve allow myself to process some things and that I really needed to get out and run a bit. And so that for me was when I just thought to myself, right, well, I have to practice what I'm preaching. All the positive tips that I always give everybody for their mental health. I need to start doing it. And so, yeah, I started forcing myself to go out and walk and then to run. And I snapped out of it pretty quickly if you know what I mean not that it's an easy thing to sort of snap out of in a way but because I I think because I'm a doctor I was able to spot the signs sooner mm-hmm. I was able to think hold on why am I finding it so hard to get up in the morning why am I finding that I've pressed snooze like seven times like this isn't normal for me mm-hmm. whereas lots of other people who don't know the patterns of when you're starting to suffer with your mental health if they don't know that they just think oh I'm a bit extra tired and this can go on for far longer so for me I was able to get on top of it and then when I felt things sort of creeping back a little over the last year I know that I need to just release the judgment and I know some people have like differing views but I find meditating is brilliant I try and meditate even a short time every day watch things that are completely mindless and silly on the tv as well because it's like you're taking yourself out of your really serious life for a while and watching something ridiculous. And what's your just, what's your went, go-to? Go on, Rosanna. Oh gosh, I, I I have so many. I mean, I watched Selling Sunset. Oh well, which was just, everyone has. Don't be ashamed. That, but that was. I'm not ashamed. I really enjoyed it. And actually, Selling Sunset got me through <laughs> Selling Sunset got me through some 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 times where I felt pretty sad. And then I just watched that, and I just thought, yeah. It, you know, it, it, this was, this was funny.
0: I wanted to talk to you, Rosanna, a bit about what it's like to be a, a woman in politics, but also a mixed race woman in politics. So your mum, I love this, your mum was in a Polish girl band, right? Yes. Yeah. that <laughs> it's true. And your dad is Pakistani? Yes. Growing
1: up as me was, was interesting because it was at a time when when it wasn't normal and very common to to be mixed race. And, you know, it was an interesting time to grow up and sort of experiencing prejudice from, from a really early age, I think has sort of fueled my desire to fight for equality for others. But also I feel incredibly privileged. I really do. Like I am so proudly British Mm -hmm. but I, I feel how lucky am I to have two such incredible cultures and beautiful heritage to be born into you know to be able to you know grow up going to Poland and understand that very complicated history and to have experienced you know the fall of communism as a child and what that all means and to enjoy learning the language and to you know be there so often, what a gift, eh? And then, you know, Pakistani heritage and the you know the culture and and, and the food and the clothes and the and the history. I, I I feel incredibly lucky. I feel as though they are real gifts. And they are gifts that people have tried my whole life to use against me. But I just think jokes on you, because I am able to relate to so many different people and able to make so many people feel safer and more secure at very vulnerable points in their life you know if i have asian patients i can connect with them and you can see they just understand that i will understand their their family dynamics and i can call them uncle or auntie and and automatically they will just get it and i feel really proud that you know the polish community yeah they're not used to a pole with a permatan Um, and my mum she experienced a a lot of issues a lot of issues I won't get into it all now but she was a pioneer you know for a a Polish blonde haired green-eyed lady to be raising two mixed-race children on her own Mm. actually you know in the 80s she experienced it all and she taught me that class is not about how much money you have. It's about how you hold yourself. And that if people are horrible to you, it's usually out of fear. So just meet them with love and kindness. And that is your superpower. So I see, I see all of this as a privilege. And there are people who try to put me in a box and I get so much racism and sexism and all of that stuff. And I just think, you know, the people that do and say horrible things, I just, I just send them love right back from my heart and think, I feel lucky that I know how to behave and it's a shame that you don't, but I am not going to give you any reason to justify how horrible you are by being horrible back because that's not the way I'm made. And the world may struggle right now with people that look like me, people that have my background. But I see myself, you know, for my girls who are Polish, Pakistani, Welsh, you know. um, I just think to myself, we are, we are bringing up a generation of people and of women who can be proud to own themselves, whoever they are, you know, and I think that if I was born into this body, into this skin, into this heritage, so that I can be an example of what it's like to own exactly who you are, then that's, that was meant to be. And I have to see it as a gift and a superpower because I want any woman whatever their skin colour, whatever their religion, whatever their sexuality, to go, she
0: owns it. If she can own it, I can own it too. I want to jump through the screen and give you a high five. Look <laughs> at you. And I'm so I'm sorry if that question was like, I wanted to bring up that that sort of element because I'm sure you've experienced lots of it and I'm sure that contributes a lot to mental yeah. health. Do you know what I mean? And I would be... Oh, it does. I just think, as you know, it might be slightly annoying coming from a white middle class blonde woman i just no, so i don't I mean, I
1: just it's was. not but that's how we learn isn't it we learn by asking people things and not assuming it's absolutely right you're right to you know you're right to ask the questions that's how we understand
0: mm. and you know you you mentioned covid you know we we know that it has disproportionately affected bame communities and you know i wanted to ask you about how that feels that's a sort of an extra grief in a way if that makes sense.
1: I think anybody with any ounce of humanity in them regardless of the colour of their skin uh, feels pain, Mm. feels pain for all of our communities. I don't think I feel more pain just because I have Pakistani heritage and Eastern European heritage I feel that I feel the level of pain that any just and right human would feel seeing those suffering. What has upset me is the way that some communities have been scapegoated. And what's hugely upset me as well is that I know the government sat on information back in February last year where they knew that our BAME communities would be more adversely affected and they did nothing. And that fuels so much of the pain and upset that I felt feeling that so many deaths could have been avoided. But we have to learn from this. It's everybody's responsibility, regardless of skin colour, ethnicity, religion, sexuality, you know, that like socioeconomic status. It's everybody's responsibility now to say, look, it's played out in technicolour in front of us, exactly what what inequalities exist in our society. It's everybody's responsibility to fight for it to be better. Everybody has a responsibility to fight for it to be better. This cannot happen again.
0: I feel like this last year, if this pandemic has given us anything... And it's given us a lot of pain. You know, It's it's been an awful experience. But I also think people feel acutely... All the things that they could distract themselves from... You know, you could distract yourself from internalized misogyny. You could distract yourself from the systemic racism that exists. You can distract yourself from all of that with your daily life. You know, um, I know it sounds that sounds awful, but that's the truth. People are getting on. They're going out. They're going to the pub. They're meeting people. They're da, 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 they're they're caught up in their own lives, right? But you remove all of that, as has happened with in the last year, and people can't. They you can't you can't ignore it. It's there, and people are fucking cross. And in a way, I'm glad you know I think I think that so much has happened in the last year
1: that has forced us to look at who we are as a a society and I fundamentally live by the principle that I think 99.999% of people are good Mm -hmm. I think a lot of things are born out of fear I think that the British public are good, decent people who have had a lot of things expressed to them over the last year through media, through campaigns, things that they may or may not have even been ready for. So many things came out of the blue, like the pandemic and laying bare all the inequalities that exist, the violence against women and girls. People really felt that across the country, through you know Sarah Everard and her painful and tragic death, through Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and, the, and, and, and how that erupted here in the U.K. And I think that it has been a pivotal year for our communities. And I know there is so much language battered around about wokeness and this and that and yeah, the other. I always like to say, let's just strip it all back. Take a long, hard look at who we are. And say that racial injustice, violence against women and girls, you know inequalities that are, that exist that are so deep rooted in our society, we all have a responsibility to make this better. And instead of long drawn out arguments about whether it's right or wrong to take the knee, about whether you know men are responsible for you know women's abuse and death let's let's take out all the ridiculous arguments and understand that people are hurting there are people who are hurting women are hurting black people are hurting minority groups are hurting people with mental illness are hurting and say to ourselves we're not just interested in this because we are from this community or that community or because we're women but because we have a global responsibility to get it right for everyone And that is what I really, really want people to take away from this last year, what I want people to take away from seeing the grief, the public displays of grief that we have never known before in this country, never seen before, and ask ourselves, why are people feeling so much pain that they're ripping down a statue? Why are people feeling so much pain that they're still showing up at the bandstand at Clapham Common? Why is this happening? It's not because they're bad people, they are hurting They are hurting, and they're hurting deeply. And let's remove how we all individually feel about things for a moment and just go, what is right and wrong? And that has to be our starting point. And if we don't learn the lessons, if we fail to learn the lessons of the last year, we've let our whole society down. We've
0: let our country down. Rosanna, I hope one day you are my Prime Minister. Oh, bless you. (laughs) That was a beautiful way to end, and I know you've got to go I honestly could just carry on chatting to you. (laughs) Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners. And I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form, so if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on 116 123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 3393. That's 0300 123 3393. They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer text support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis text service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone.